Volume One, Chapter Nine of Autobiography of a Seaman by Thomas Cochrane. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Employment in the Arab. On the renewal of war with France in 1803, application was made by me to the Admiralty for a ship, first taking the precaution to visit the various dockyards to see what vessels were ready or in preparation. My object was to obtain a suitable vessel which should enable me to operate inshore and harass the French coast in the Atlantic, as the Speedy had done the Spanish coast in the Mediterranean. My success there formed sufficient warrant for such an application, as, previous to the Peace of Amiens, the enemy's coastal trade from Bayonne to Boulogne had been carried on almost with impunity. My application was made to Lord St. Vincent, who informed me that, at present, there was no vessel available. Having ascertained beforehand what vessels were in preparation for sea, I began to enumerate several, all of which his lordship assured me were promised to others. On mentioning the names of some in a less forward state, an objection was raised by his lordship that they were too large. This was met by a fresh list, but these his lordship said were not in progress. In short, it became clear that the British Navy contained no ship of war for me. I frankly told his lordship as much, remarking that as the board was evidently of the opinion that my services were not required, it would be better for me to go back to the College of Edinburgh and pursue my studies, with a view of occupying myself in some other employment. His lordship eyed me keenly, to see whether I really meant what I said, and observing no signs of flinching, for beyond doubt my countenance showed signs of disgust at such unmerited treatment, he said, Well, you shall have a ship. Go down to Plymouth, and there await the orders of the Admiralty. Thanking his lordship, I left him, and repairing to Plymouth, found myself appointed to the Arab. There was some difficulty in finding her, for my sanguine imagination had depicted a rakish craft, ready to run over to the French coast, and return with a goodly batch of well-laden coasters. In place of this, a dockyard attendant showed me the bare ribs of a collier, which had been purchased into the service in the manner described by Captain Brenton, as quoted in the last chapter. I would not have cared for this, but a single glance at the naked timbers showed me that, to use a seaman's phrase, she would sail like a haystack. It was not my wish, however, to complain, but rather to make the best of the wretched craft provided for me, and therefore there was nothing to be done but to wait patiently whilst she was completed, for the most part with old timber from broken-up vessels. As soon as the Arab was ready for sea, instead of being permitted to make a foray on the French coast, for which, however, she was ill-adapted, orders were given to take a cruise round the land's end into St. George's Channel and return to Plymouth. This experimental service being accomplished, without result of any kind, although we sighted several suspicious vessels, which, from our bad sailing qualities, we could not examine, on our return, the Arab was ordered to join the force, then lying in the downs, quietly watching the movements of the enemy on the opposite coast. Though Napoleon had not a marine capable of competing with ours, he had, during the last war, become aware that any number of French gunboats could sail along their own coasts, under the protection of the numerous batteries, and hence 
he conceived the project of uniting these with others at Boulogne, so as to form, collectively, a flotilla capable of effecting an invasion of England, whose attention was to be divided by an attempt on Ireland, for which purpose an army and fleet were assembled at Brest. The means by which this invasion of the Kentish or Sussex coast was to be effected is worth adverting to. The various towns of France were invited to construct flat-bottom boats to be distinguished by the names of the towns and departments which furnished them. They were divided into three classes and transported to the nearest port town, thence coastwise to Boulogne, there to be filled with troops and convoyed to the English shores by ships of war. It has been the custom to deride this armament, but had it not been for Nelson's subsequent victory at Trafalgar, I see no cause to doubt that sooner or later it might have been successful. Nowadays of steamships, the way to prevent the success of a similar project is by the maintenance of a navy more efficiently manned than modern governments appear to think necessary for the national safety. I do not mean efficiency as to the number of vessels of war, for in my early day the number was very great, but their efficiency, from causes already mentioned, very trifling. I mean rather that every care should be taken to keep a sufficient number in a high state of discipline, but above all that the stimulus of reward for merit should be so applied as that parliamentary influence should not interfere with officers, nor a paltry hankering after saving with the crews. The Arab was sent to watch the enemy in Boulogne. To those acquainted with the collier build, even as they appear in the Thames to this day, it is scarcely necessary to say that she would not work to inward. With a fair wind, it was not difficult to get off Boulogne, but to get back with the same wind was, in such a craft, all but impossible. The only way of effecting this was, by watching the tide, to drift off as well as we could. A gale of wind anywhere from northeast to northwest would infallibly have driven us on shore on the French coast. Under such circumstances, the idea of effectively watching the port, as understood by me, viz., to look out for troop boats in shore, was out of the question, our whole attention being necessarily directed to the vessel's safety. Considering this compromised, I wrote to the Admiral commanding that the Arab was of no use for the service required, as she would not work to windward, and that her employment in such a service could only result in our loss by shipwreck on the French coast. My letter was no doubt forwarded to the Admiralty, for shortly afterwards an order arrived for the Arab to convoy the Greenland ships from Shetland, and then to cruise in the North Sea to protect the fisheries. The order was, in fact, to cruise to the northeast of the Orkneys, where no vessel fished, and where, consequently, there were no fisheries to protect. But not so much as a single whaler was seen from the masthead during the whole of that lonely cruise, though it was as light by night as by day. The board had fairly caught me, but a more cruel order could not have been devised by official malevolence. It was literally naval exile in a tub, regardless of expense to the nation. To me it was literally a period of despair from the useless inactivity into which I was forced, without object or purpose beyond that of visiting me with the weight of official displeasure. I will not trouble the reader with any reminiscences of this degrading command, or rather dreary punishment, for such it was no doubt intended to be, as depriving me of the opportunity of exerting or distinguishing myself, and this for no better reason than my having 
most truly though perhaps inconsiderately urged in justification of the promotion of the gallant lieutenant of the speedy that all lord st vincent's chief officers had been promoted for an action in which fewer men fell in a three-decker than in my brig of this protracted cruise it is sufficient to state that my appointment to the arab was dated fifth of october eighteen o three and that she returned to england on the first of december eighteen o four a period which formed a blank in my life on my arrival lord st vincent fortunately for me had quitted or rather been compelled to retire from the admiralty the late duke of hamilton the premier peer of scotland and my excellent friend was so indignant at my ignominious expulsion from active service where alone it would be beneficial to the country that unsolicited by any one he strongly impressed upon lord melville the successor of lord st vincent the necessity of relieving me from that penal hulk the arab and repairing the injustice which had been inflicted on me by employing me on more important service lord melville admitted the injustice and promptly responded to the appeal by transferring me from the wretched craft in which i had been for fifteen months in exile to the palace a new fur-built frigate of thirty-two guns End of Book One, Chapter Nine. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.